Hello and welcome to the Great Rift podcast. I'm David. I'm Jamie. Hello, Jamie. How are you on this sunny bank holiday? It's very nice. Yeah, good weather. Good, good weather to be inside recording with you, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, and I, I sort of, I, I made an extra effort on top of my one to stay indoors and record by going to get my first jab about an hour ago for the dreaded COVID. And um, right. I can really feel my arm starting to go numb, which is excellent news for recording. So hopefully I'll be able to. <laughs> my way through for the next hour and a bit um you're on bill gates radar now at the minute yes yeah, yep yeah, yep yeah, he is here he's ready for me um so uh if you haven't read the title of the uh episode and you've just dived straight into listening to it we've got a, a, a an exciting guest with us today we've got mr james swallow hello james hey guys thanks for having me on the show it's nice to be here yeah great to have you buddy um so uh diving straight in for those that may have like i said jumped in and not not really looked at the title of, of who's on this or what this episode's about would you mind giving us a couple of minutes of who you are what you do what you've written um why people should be excited to listen to this episode <laughs> well i always say um when people ask me what is it i do for a living i have to say i'm a writer of stuff yeah. um because there's a lot of stuff to be written and i like writing lots of different kind of things uh, I'm a BAFTA-nominated scriptwriter. Uh, I'm an award-winning New York Times, Sunday Times, Amazon number one best-selling novel, ro- novelist, written over 50 books. Uh, that goes everything from action-packed espionage thrillers, fast-paced science fiction, uh, and lots of tie-in fiction. You know, obviously, people listening to this podcast will know me primarily from my work on Warhammer 40,000 and the Horus Heresy, but I've also written for lots of other famous intellectual properties, including Star Trek 24, Doctor Who, Halo, Stargate, Blake 7, 2000 AD, um, a little bit of stuff for Star Wars, um, and, and a whole bunch of other ones, as well as also working on a lot of video game projects. If you're familiar with the games like uh, the Deus Ex series, Disney Infinity Star Wars, Ghost Recon Wildlands, Division 2, worked on all of those. I also did uh, a little bit of work for uh, television on Star Trek Voyager back in the 1990s, late 1990s. That was kind of our first gig. I've written, as I say, uh, quite a bit of original fiction as well. I've got my, my Sundowners series of steampunk westerns that I wrote back in. Uh, funnily enough, it's actually the the... the I think it was the 15th anniversary of those just recently. Or was it the 10th? 10th anniversary of those just this, just recently. Uh, and currently my Mark Dane action thriller series, which is up to the fifth book, Rogue, coming out in paperback later on uh, this year. And those have been doing very well for me. So I generally write in lots of different mediums. I like to write in all different ways. I like to write short fiction, long form, video games. I like to do audio drama. I like to do all different kinds of story writing because I feel it's kind of like the the thing that keeps me sharp as an author. So I'm constantly bouncing around. People always say to me, wow, you've written a lot of stuff and you've written a lot of stuff in different places. Um, you're very prolific. And it's it's weird to hear that because I don't feel like I'm a prolific writer. Mm. I just I just feel like I'm a guy who loves to write. <laughs> so um, so if there's anything out there that's kind of interesting or cool, if I see it and think, oh, I'd love to tackle that story. I'd love to write in this medium. I'd love to get my hands on that toy box of characters and try that out. You know, I'm always looking for the thing that kind of makes me go, ooh, that's cool. Yeah. That's the impulse <laughs> that pushes me forward as a writer, you know, to to, to carry on uh, in that direction. Uh, and I, I guess I have to say, you know, I'm a lucky person because I get to do what I love for a living, mm-hmm. which is write books. That's cool. Actually, my first, my first question is, all the... Obviously, our podcast is um, is kind of Warhammer, Black Library centric. But um, out of all those, all those different, as you say, different properties you work for, do you, 
when you do go back to writing for Black Rivalry, do you do you take some of that with you? Can you do you feel there's an influence from your different aspects of writing back into the into the grim dark world that there is that is Warhammer? I think there's stylistically um, from different styles of writing, there's definitely uh, a bit of crossover because you know when you're writing a story, at the end of the day, it's all it's all character and narrative, right? It's all story. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the way that you express it is differently. So, you know, the way I would work on a video game is very different from the way I would work on an audio drama or a short story or a novel. It's like I'm taking a different tool out of my toolbox. You know, I use the spanner on this, but I use the screwdriver on that. Right. But but at the end of the day, it comes from the same place. And I think the skills I learned, say, doing video game writing may translate over into me doing something in a novel because one one set of skills I learn, you know, I think of it like leveling up with XP, right? You know, I'm, my XP level is going up every time I'm writing something. And then I can transfer that ability across to working on something that's kind of related, but slightly different. So I think in that term, I do definitely bring one thing from one place to the other. But in terms of the the sort of texture and tone of the universe, those things are always kept very separate. Because if I'm writing, say, like if I'm writing a Doctor Who story, even if it's a kind of grim dark Doctor Who story, it's never going to be as grim dark as Warhammer is, <laughs> because they're just, you know, they're tonally, they're, those two things, they just don't connect. So, you know, it would it would be wrong of me to kind of transfer one one over from the other. So, I try to make sure that when I'm writing in a particular franchise, the most important thing I think is is true of any of these things, and you probably hear this from any Titan writer, is to get the tone and the texture right, is to make it feel like this story belongs in that world. Yeah. Because if, because if it doesn't, you know, I mean, I and the thing is, I read these stories. You know, I'm a fan of these this fiction too. I don't just write it. I read books in all these different um, IPs because I enjoy them, and I always see it when you know I look at a book and I think, well, you, you don't really get what this character is about. I can feel <laughs> you just don't connect with it, you know. So I don't ever want to be that guy. I want to try and make sure that when I write in a franchise or an IP that I'm writing something that feels like it belongs in that world. Yeah. Although saying that. I now do want a grim dark Doctor Who after you just said that. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. No, that's really good. Um, I, I had a question around IP actually, um, and uh, it, it ties into some of what you said already. The how do you go about? Uh, I'm not shaking it off, but moving from one to another so you're not carrying over um, the sort of tone, as you say, the tone and the, the theme shifting over to that other IP. So maybe you're on Doctor Who and you go back into to Warhammer. Is there a way you go through that process? Is there like a playbook or a Bible that has like how you write? Do you have that in your head or does it exist as like a tangible thing? Am I like, am I like kind of decompressing from one to the other, right? Like like, yeah. a, dive, like a diver coming up from the surface, yeah, underwater. I think there's creators out there that can't do it. Um, and I, you know, the very, very quick one, watching J.J. Abrams jump from Star Trek to Star Wars, I, I could just, they just felt like J.J. Abrams. <laughs> Just one big film, yeah. Star Trek, and I really, really noticed that was the first time in film I really felt it. So I'm wondering if you have a way of getting that out of your system. Not really. I just, I, I guess for me, my process. I mean, you, you ask another writer, you'll get another answer, you know, because writers always have different processes. I don't have a process. I just subconsciously I have a switch that flips in my head like a little dial, and I turn that dial from Warhammer to Star Trek to Doctor Who to nice. whatever, you know. And 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 my writer brain goes, "You are doing this now." <laughs> you will do this thing you will not do that thing yeah phases you know? not programs. yeah <laughs> yeah you know uh, and it's that kind of thing but you know you're absolutely right i mean some people can't can't make the the, the shift i mean i i can remember a, a friend of mine an american science fiction writer this is a good few years back now he was trying out for for warhammer 40,000 
and he just could not do it. He could yeah. not. He couldn't land the story. And I, I remember he was having a hard time with it. And he reached out to me privately and he said, look, can you can you help me with this? Because I'm, I don't know why I don't get it. So I said, well, look, you know, normally I don't do this kind of thing. But he was just like, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. So I was like, <laughs> OK, right. Oh, I said, look, send, send me the outline. Let me see what you wrote. Uh, and he was doing like a Space Marine story. I think it was like Raven Guard or something about Raven Guard Scout Squad. And immediately I read it. I was like, no, this isn't right. And and then I and then the weird thing was is it was really hard to articulate why it wasn't mm-hmm. right because yeah. it was you know when people say what is art and you go it's the thing I know it when I see it, it's the thing I point at and I say that is art right and it's the same with like Warhammer and Horus Heresy it's like you know it when you see it but you also yeah. know it when you don't see it yeah I get you and oh, I yeah, definitely at the end I of think... it I said to him you know what you got to remember about this is this is not Black Hawk Down it's Gladiator it's that. <laughs> It's tonally, it's that kind of difference. Mm, mm. And, and, you know, and you have to get yourself into that kind of headspace. And, you know, I always say, like, in the Warhammer universe, nobody speaks, but everybody declares. And it's got that, <laughs> and it's got that, it's got that very big, operatic, kind mm-hmm. of Shakespearean, mythological kind of feel to it. Everything is very large, and everything, everything has broad scope and, a, and large sweep. Even when you do small things, it still has kind of, of a, an epicness to a quality of epicness to it yeah. uh and in the end this guy was like he he's like i, I just can't get this and i was like maybe, maybe you know you're not the right fit for this writing and he went off and found something that, that worked better for him so you know as you say some people can't get that can't get over that hump and, and i think that's one of the unique things about um the warhammer franchise is it is this weird kind of witch's brew of of stuff you know you've got there's a bit of Michael Moorcock in there. There's a bit of Judge Dredd. There's a bit of Dune. There's the uh, Sven Hassel novels. And there's all that kind of stuff all kind of mixed up together with this very healthy dose of British nihilistic sort of dark, grimdarkery going on in there. And and sometimes people just can't find that voice. It's, it's very, I agree, it's very <coughs> um, 80s Britain, even even now today. I think it just, from when it, from where it came from, I think you can still feel that in, uh, and I guess that's with the writers who continue that, who have brought it forward. It's just that very, yeah, just that very dark 80s, as you say, Judge Dredd, 2000 AD feel that's just sort of continued through. And maybe, yeah, as people who have not been into that background probably just, yeah, do find it hard to maybe grasp as they move it's, forward. It's funny now, you know, now you're saying that, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how many of us working on the, the IP now were actually children of the 80s? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, because there's a there's a you know just recently we've had like kind of a whole new tranche of new writers coming in, and I would imagine that a bunch of those young whippersnappers, most of them probably aren't. They're probably like you know people who grew up in the 90s, whereas like you know <clears throat> I'm an, I'm a sort of child of the Star Wars generation, so late 70s, early 80s. That's that era was right in my wheelhouse. But I think some of the newer writers we've got, they aren't from that generation, but they still have the Warhammer voice in their writing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, guy. I know this is an odd thing to say, but I would love to see it. I, I work in digital and branding, and I love a good brand bible like that explains the type, the language of the brand. And there's a fascinating one done for Stranger Things, their pitch mm-hmm. bible that they created to take out to the networks to get them to buy their show. And it's actually online, and it's just this stunning little thing that explains the tone. Like they used images from movies in the 80s, and mm-hmm. you know, the source music they wanted to use. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see someone knock together a Warhammer version. <laughs> I think it could be really cool. It could. Just I think. Be- I think the closest thing to that was there was a a sort of writer's guide. 
I hate to call it a guide because that kind of gives that makes it sound grandiose. And it was like a couple of pages of A4. It wasn't really a big sort of document or anything um, that Mark Gascoigne at the time when he was the editor put together. Uh, and it was for people who were pitching to Inferno, the the um, short story magazine, because it used to be the the kind of the on ramp to writing for Black Library would be you would do a couple of short stories for Inferno. And if you got the tone and if you looked like you knew what you were doing, they'd give you like an opportunity to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that kind of, you know, and that went away. And then, and then the, the kind of replacement for it now is, is we've got the, the sort of the short story competitions mm-hmm. that, that are coming up instead. Uh, so it probably would have been, I'm, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but I think it would have probably been the Inferno guide. Mm. And, what I, and the thing I remember the most from it is there was a bit where Mark was saying about how you do Warhammery dialogue. And it was something like, you know, a character doesn't walk down the street and say, excuse me, sir, uh, which which way to Nuln? You know, the, the character was going to go, ho, old man, which way lies Nuln? You know, and you do it like, and it's kind of like that. And it's got, you know, that's the, that's, it's it's jokey, but it, but it does immediately say to you, this is the difference in tonality. Yeah, I totally get it. You have to find it to, and you have to, and you have to be true to it. Because the thing about the Warhammer universe is it's big and, and it's mad and it's completely ridiculous, but everybody in it, absolutely believes it wholeheartedly yeah yeah it's um it's a point on that oh sorry go on no i was gonna say yeah um when we first started doing the 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 judge uh, not judge the um i'm saying judge dread because of the voice actor uh, toby longworth the voice actor i worked with on the 2000 ad series who'd done judge dread um when we started doing the audio dramas toby was one of the first voice actors to do space marine yeah and i remember going into the recording studio and i took the you know the art of warhammer 40,000 book Mm-hmm. And I sat there and I said, and he's like, who are these guys? And I was like, this is what they look like. And he's, he's going through it. And he was definitely, he's, he's a geek. He's, he's properly sort of nerd adjacent. So he understood the kind of the, the, the context of it, even though he wasn't a fan of Warhammer. And I explained it to him and I said, you know, this is Shakespearean. It's got to be big. And I said, but and I said, all this stuff you're going to say is you're going to read it and it's going to look ridiculous. But you absolutely, 100%, you have to mean it mm-hmm. like like it's the most important thing, as serious as cancer. You know, you be dead on with this thing. Yeah. So, and Toby was like, "I got you, fam." You know, and he went in there and he just, <laughs> and because he, he's such a great voice actor, he he got it 100%. And I think that's that's part of the understanding is is can you can you get that tone? Can yeah. You, can you get what? Because if, if you don't get Warhammer, you'll never be a fan of it. You won't want to read the law. You won't want to play the game. But yeah. if you do get it. It's kind of like, oh, you get to join our secret club, you know. You, know, you understand what it's like, and and that's the kind of the fun of it. Yeah, it's um just on that note of the, of the grandioseness. <clears throat> I think back to the Dawn of War games when they first came out, and trying to coax my friends as a teenager into playing it, and a lot of them got a bit confused by the Space Marines. You know, the the sort of grandiose. Every time you click them to move, they they don't say affirmative. It's like affirmative, like very very in your face all the time. Um, and my friends just couldn't quite get their head around it. But I was just like, but this is what they sound like. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know? Yeah, this is the, the, all their past, all this history, though, why they're like this. And yeah, if you, yeah, <laughs> to other people who've not quite uh, delved into it too long, they, they can be a bit over the top. But yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, cool. So I guess talking more about some of the stuff you've written, um, funny enough, when we were talking to. Graham on our last interview episode I mentioned that um, the Ultramarines Omnibus was one of the first I ever got hold of alongside that was the uh, Deus uh, 
pronounce this, I'm going to butcher it, I imagine, Encarmine and Sanguinius, Deus Encarmine. I ended up getting all of those at once as well, and they all went on holiday with me to Greece. So I've got this fond summer holiday memory of <laughs> Deus Encarmine <laughs> and then the Ultramarines Omnibus all sort of back to back. So that was that your first foray into writing Warhammer 40,000? No, I'd done it, like I was saying earlier about the the whole thing with the sort of the short story on ramp. I'd done a couple of those first. Yeah. So the so the very, very first thing I ever wrote for Black Library was uh, a short story called Crimson Knight. Okay. Which mm-hmm. is um it's a Doom Eagle Space Marine story because there was there was an idea at the time that the Doom Eagles were gonna be the fiction only chapter. And it was it was this, this interesting kind of seat there was like there would never be a codex, there would never be an index of studies, they would only ever appear in the books or short stories. Mm. And and that would be their kind of unique thing, which is a really cool idea. They did actually write an index of studies article which was given out to all the writers, but it was like this will never be printed, right? You know, just for reference. And so um we were all kind of like, you know, pitch Doom Eagle stories. Uh, and I still think, as a sidebar here, I think there's so many great Doom Eagles stories um, lying around somewhere. I think BL should kind of dig them all out and put them in a Doom Eagles anthology because I think the Doom Eagles are pretty cool. But anyway, uh, and I did this story um, and it had uh, the flesh terrors in it because mm. um, they were you know, they're, they're an interesting sort of a bunch of bad guys. So I did that as a story and they, they had the kind of villain role in this in this novel in their sorry, initial story. Uh, and I did a couple more stories with those characters, uh, th- those Doom Eagles characters. And, in, and actually, in the end, I, I folded some of those characters back into my Blood Angels novels as well. So they pop up again. Uh, I've got my own kind of, I started going back and referring to my own continuity in stories, you know, trying to web all my stuff together. That's very cool. And I also did a, a kind of what would now be called a, an Aeronautica Imperialis story. But then at that time, it was just like a kind of Imperial Guards with planes story. Mm-hmm. Which, was, which was just fun. That was me kind of channeling, channeling the old Commando comics, which I ended up later writing yeah. for, for at the time. Um, you know, uh, it was me sort of like doing that, you know, going, tally-ho, take that, <laughs> you know, cabbage crates over the briny kind of thing. And, and that was a lot of fun doing that. But after I'd done a couple of these stories, uh, the editor at the time was um, the lovely Lindsay Priestley. And Lindsay came to me and said, look, we know we like, we like what you're doing. Do you want to try, try out for a novel? Mm. And she said, well, what do you feel like doing? You know, what would you what story would you like to write? And as luck would have it, the very first Games Day event I went to, just after I'd done my short story and um, William King was there, master of the Space Wolves and, and many other, other great things. And uh, they introduced me to him and they said, this is Jim. He's just started writing for Black Library. And the first words out of his mouth were, he said to me, he said, do you want to know how to be successful at writing for Black Library? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, yes, obviously, you know, hmm, a chance to sit at the feet of a guy who's made a lot of money working for Black Library. Yes, absolutely. Please tell me, you know, tell me, Obi-Wan, of, of how I can become a much better writer for Black Library. And he said to me, and he gave me this great piece of advice. He said to me, find a piece of the law that nobody's done anything with. Make it your own and and just plumb the depths of it because there's so much stuff out there because the, the Warhammer universe is so vast. This is embarrassment of riches of all this stuff. And I went away with that ringing in my head. And uh, Lindsay said to me, you know, we want you to do Space Marines because that's the most popular thing. So, you know, Space Marine novel would be a great place to start. And I originally thought about actually kind of coming up with a homebrew chapter because uh, at the time Ben Counter was doing his Soul Drinkers books. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the Soul Drinkers were were a, a chapter he completely invented himself. And I had a few ideas and I thought about it. 
And then I realized, as I was looking at the sort of what books had been published and what comics were out, is I realized that no one had done the Blood Angels. It's the only Blood Angels stories that had been done was the Gordon Rennie's Blood Quest stuff that had been a comic book. But no one had actually done a Blood Angels novel. And I thought, this is like one of the the core factions, one of the very first sort of like the, the Ura factions of the game. Why has nobody done a novel? I thought, this is just staring me in the face. And plus, the Blood Angels are cool. You know, yeah. I, they, they have to me what i think is one of the best dramatic spurs in the in the um warhammer universe which is that they have the kind of the light side dark side thing going on that they have the kind of my gift is my curse yeah and and that is and that is drama right there you know that the the two different sides warring against each other that is that is drama straight away and immediately you have you just have a blood angel in a room by himself you've got drama so (laughs) this is this is you know this is this is crying out to be written so I pitched two ideas to Lindsay and I remember I thought, right, I'm going to pitch one kind of sort of like a kind of a, a sort of sensible level. And then I'm going to pitch, pick one sort of blue sky crazy idea, which they'll never buy. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the sensible idea I pitched was essentially this kind of almost this sort of like Black Hawk Down type story about a small group of space marines who are on a planet that's been taken over by chaos and everybody else gets evacuated and they get left behind. So now mm. it's just like it's like literally like one team of blood angels fighting to get off the planet and the entire planet is trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. And it was a very simple, very sort of small story, you know, like a road movie type thing. And I thought this is the one they're going to pitch. And then my crazy idea was, you know, what if we have the second coming of Sanguinius and there's a massive uh, schism and a civil war within the blood angels? And I'm like, they'll never go for that. <laughs> it's too crazy. And Lindsay went, that's the one we'll have, please. Oh, and by the way, can you make it two novels, not one? <laughs> so i was like all right then rolls up my sleeves and and that was the that was the genesis of the the deus and carmine deus sanguinius um duology did that feel when when you created that idea obviously you took it seriously but you, and you say that you thought they'd go for the first option did it suddenly hit you when they said we want that one you realized you were about to you know it could almost be seen as sacrilege couldn't it like oh god i'm gonna <laughs> I'm going to have blood angels <laughs> at each other. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it was the, 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 to me, it's got, because the, the, the Warhammer universe and the characters within it have these operatic mythological and biblical kind of bigness to them. The idea of a kind of like a schism and a second coming. And, 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 you know, the, the idea of the faith of an entire chapter being split to me was immediately like, well, this is a cool idea because it's the idea of two sides Again, it's coming back to the character of the nature of the Blood Angels themselves is being pulled in two different directions, you know, by their good side and their bad side. And this is literally externalizing that idea yeah. with this big, this big concept and saying, well, what if we took that thing that is in the core of every single Blood Angel and we made it, we made it manifest? Yeah. And, and it starts to break the chapter apart. That was the sort of the impetus behind the story. Yeah. That, 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 uh, my my big thing that I took from it as well was that theme of brotherhood. Obviously, it's a very big uh, Space Marine deal. They're all brothers, but even more so in Deus and Carmine and Sanguinis because they are brothers, literally. Uh, <laughs> that that that's quite a nice little touch to that story. Uh, did you think of that as part of the pitch? As having yeah, to- definitely because um, it wasn't something I'd ever seen done before. No, because you know you always have the one of the things about Space Marines is they're a found family. And you have that kind of concept of the found family and the, of, of the sort of the, you know, how you're adopted into this family, into this chapter. And you have how brotherhood is forged 
sort of through adversity and you have the the idea of the sort of the you know brothers in a foxhole kind of thing that you get in you know in the military where some people come from different walks of life but they they have these bonds forged because you know you're in the foxhole next to a guy and you're both being shot at yeah. You know, you have to you have to trust that person on a level and have a closeness with them that you maybe wouldn't be able to have with any other person. And I thought, well, we take that idea of the sort of like the found family and the, the, the bonding under adversity. And then what if you actually add the kind of the actual blood, literal blood brotherhood of somebody? You know, here is somebody who is literally your sibling. Yeah. And and again, it, it, it goes into all that sort of big Shakespearean oper- operatic mythological kind of stuff. You know, it touches all of those things, sounds all those notes. So to me, it was uh, I thought it was just a fun idea to explore the idea of, of two brothers on two sides being, uh, you know, uh, yet being within the same group, but being pushed in two different directions. Again, it's the duality, you know, the yeah. the, the, the mirror, the mirror image of the same thing. It's the, it's the genesis of the Blood Angels as well, isn't it? Like as we know them, I guess. Um, you know their their father dying to his brother's hands. You know that it's, it's kind of all all built within them. That kind of brotherly love, brotherly violence. I guess um, it, it feels like part of their DNA. And I, I like the idea as well of the kind of the the, the sort of second coming of a Primarch. I mean, we, you know, in, I mean, we've kind of seen that now with with Gulliman coming back. But at the time, that was an idea that nobody had touched on. Mm. And I thought, well, what if you know. A, a, the, a, the the sort of the spirit and the character of Primark could be could be rekindled in in a member of their chapter, and that's mm-hmm. kind of like the you know I mean it's obviously it's all a, you know spoiler alert, it's all a horrible plot by chaos right but <laughs> but the idea that a, a a regular blood angel could kind of come to embody what Sanguinius was mm. what, what would that mean um, yeah. what would that mean what would that mean for their legion I'd immediately assume from if I was living in that world, I just immediately assume chaos. I don't know why. I just wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you've got the retrospect, Dave. You've read all the books and yeah. know the outcomes. <laughs> yeah, I'm exceptionally smart, but yeah, <laughs> it's just bonkers. But I, 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 I really liked it as well because Sanguinis is one of the few that is categori- categorically dead. Um, there's so many of the Primarchs that are, we think they're dead, or they've gone for a walk and no one knows where they where they've gone. They've gone for ten thousand years, but Sanguinis is one of the few that is absolutely dead. So it's really nice. You know, when I was when I was writing the book, trying to nail that down, is I was saying like, you know, he's he's dead, right? And they're like, yeah, he's dead. And I'm like, and one of the questions that came up in the book is, I said, where's his body? And <laughs> yeah, and right. nobody and nobody had an answer because that piece of law had never been written. So so I I wrote that. I had to I had to I had to come up with well, what happened to Sanguinis' body? Yeah. You know, because you know the, the last thing we see, you know, there's that famous image of like him lying dead at Horus's feet. Um, and I thought, well, what happens to his body after that? You know, they, go, they shoot him into the sun or, you know, does he get buried somewhere? Yeah. And so I, and so I came up with this whole thing about, you know, that his body's brought back to, to Baal. And it's like, you know, in this sarcophagus, this molten gold sarcophagus that's held up in a force field underneath the, the fortress monastery, you know, and, and, um, and all these different sort of like little bits of law that started to grow out of that. Cause once I had the idea of that, the, the idea of how over, you know, 10,000 years, the, the, the sort of structure of a narrative of that particular set of events, how it would have played out, you know, became really interesting. And then it gave me this impetus for this sort of like the ending of this, this story, which is, um, you know, the, the bad guys um, in, in, in the following novels, you know, the, the, the bad guys are trying to literally steal Sanguinis' corpse. Yeah. yeah. And so it becomes, you know, his body becomes this like, you know, this, this um, MacGuffin in the story that enables me to sort of uh, tell another sort of narrative. 
what was the big difference in writing them 10,000 years apart? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the, the whole thing about the heresy is that it's, especially at the beginning, the early stories, you know, you, you see the, the, the Imperium at the height of its power. And you, you see this kind of, you just get to see the sort of golden possibility of what it would have been like if everything was okay, if the heresy doesn't happen. So what you do is, you, you know, take the 40,000 era space marines and, you know, take them, dial the clock back 10,000 years and say, well, where would they have been? What would they have been like at this perfect time in their life when everything was going their way? Or so it seems. So it was, it was. You know, I'm, I'm go- I was going back to some of the really the earliest law and, and documents I could find in the very early rule books. He's like, what's the very first thing that was said about the blood angels? What can I use? What can I find and expand on and kind of open out into into sort of something that's a bit more fully formed? So I was trying to pull in all these different things in all these different directions to kind of create some a sort of synthesis, of something coherent, but that still feels like the blood angels. It feels recognizably like who they are. I guess there must have been a slight shift in writing for them around the fact their dad was still around as well, because I guess the big part of their psyche now is that the impact that had of yeah. him dying. So yeah, what was, did you have to did you have to think about that a lot when you were writing, or could you just push it to one side? Well, one of the things that I I wanted to to show was the idea that the flaw is not something that kind of miraculously happens the moment Sanguinius dies mm-hmm. is that actually the floor was there all along yeah. and, and that you know and, and it's actually sort of bubbling away a little bit before Sanguinius dies because it's part of because it's part of who they are and I think that's that to me that that's one of the the sort of shock revelations in this I think a lot of people were kind of like how could that be and it's like but this is but when you think about it it's like of course it's always been part of them Mm. it doesn't you know it, it doesn't just suddenly happen they don't suddenly change overnight it's like no this has always been there there's always been this darkness again it's going back to the duality of it you know the it's just that sanguinius's death is the thing that sort of breaks the dam and allows that to come out and become more fully formed mm. so that was a key part of it but i think the the most the most difficult thing and also the most rewarding thing for me when i was doing fear to tread was was writing sanguinius because okay. I and I, I I tend to be somebody who like I I plot my stuff quite heavily and then I sit down and I just I you know bulldoze my way through it and I go back and I edit after the fact. Mm-hmm. But I don't tend to sort of write stuff and then go oh, I'm not happy with that and toss it away. You know I I if if I write something what I'll do is I'll work at it until it has the shape I want it to have. But with the sanguinous stuff I wrote a whole bunch of stuff that just didn't work and I threw it away and I kept on I was like no that's not right that's not right do it again do it again and I had to keep working and working and working until I found his voice mm. um, and it was a real challenge for me because I wanted to do it well I wanted to do him justice uh, and in the end the the scene that I'm I think in Fear the scene that I'm the proudest of is where he goes to talk to Horus after Horus has been named Warmaster. Mm. And, they, and it's all done from the point of view of this servitor just serving them drinks. And, and you know, and, and Horace is kind of a bit pissed off, <laughs> even though he's been named Warmaster. And Sangrinus comes in and he's like, mate, oh, I'm so I'm made up for you. And he gives him like a big hug and he's so happy for him. Mm. He's like, oh, this is super awesome. And, 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 and But Horace just sees the dark side and Horace is like, everybody else is going to say I'm not worthy of this. Everybody else is going to say they deserved it. And I don't know if I did. Uh, and then he says to Sanguinius, you know, you sh- this sh- it should have been you, not me. And Sanguinius is like, no, no, how could you even? S- that that's that's beyond wrong. Of course it's not. Of course it couldn't be me. It has to be you, you know. And they 
And they have this moment, which I'm really proud of, where I think the brotherliness comes up, the brotherly love between the two of them comes up and the strength of the characters comes through. And it took me a long time to get to that scene. But mm. at the end of it, I felt like I thought, oh, I got him now. I know I know, I know, I got the key into his character. Mm. I know how. Mm. But it was, a, it was a fun experience to, to just reach back into that and try and create a character that feels real, that feels true to the, to mm. the mythology of the character we know about, but also hopefully showing a side to him that people haven't seen before. Yeah, I think was, sorry, I was going to say with Sanguinius, his, uh, some Primarchs are very obvious, I guess, because they're very obvious in what they are and everything. But I think Sanguinius, as he said, is, is quite a delicateness to him, is quite a intelligence to him, quite a high authority. But I guess, yeah, as you say, writing any sort of demigod character is always going to be fairly tricky, especially one that has so much mythology built up mm. around him because of his his death necessarily and and he is the he's the most numinous of the characters right because he's mm-hmm. the he's arguably the 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 least human because he's got wings right he's he's yeah. he's literally an angel right and and so if you think of the the way that like angels are portrayed in sort of like in, in history and in culture is they are portrayed as these higher beings uh, and and that is what Sanguinius is, and that's part of the reason why he couldn't be Warmaster because he's he's t- he's a step removed from kind of yeah. the common man, you know. Whereas Horus is closer to that, but he's not too close to he's not too close to the common man. Like you know, if you if you look at the if you look at the arc of kind of where Primarchs are in relation to like regular people, it's like Vulcan's the guy who probably has the common touch. He's the guy who could maybe be the closest to a human, mm-hmm. and. Horus is somewhere in the middle and Sanguinius is right up at the top end where he's just like, you know, he's, 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 he's almost going beyond that. And it's interesting to sort of write characters in that space because it's, how do you relate to them? How do you make them interesting and human? How do you make them relatable to regular people like us who are reading the story, but still make them sort of epic and, yeah. and amazing at the same time? I think I was gonna say, one of my favorite parts of that book as well is that scene in the church, right at the beginning where we, where we discover that actually no, they have this flaw for them. Was that was that a difficult scene to write? As you say, one of the first times to say actually no, they already had this in, inside them. That was the that was the scene I, I enjoyed writing that scene because it's um it's one of those moments where you know when you watch a horror movie and you're like don't go in the basement. Yes, yeah, very and, much. And, and it's it's one of those scenes where you know you've got Horus and Sanguinius talking and 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 Sanguinius basically reveals this secret that he's never told anybody about. And he says, you know, my boys have got this floor and I'm really worried about it. And and Horace's first reaction is, have you told dad? And of course, Sanguinis is like, are you crazy? You know, <laughs> remember what happened to those other two guys who we don't oh, yeah, talk yeah. about? You know, and it's like, you know, and, and he kind of alludes to like whatever, you know, without alluding, without saying what happened. But he's like, you know, those those other two guys were like expunged from history. We're not even allowed to speak of them. Hmm. And if he's like, if I go to dad and say, oh, sorry, I think my chapter's flawed. What's to say that he's not going to do that to the blood angels? He's like, you can't tell, you can never tell anybody about this. And at the end, you know, that scene, Horace says to him, don't worry, I'll never use this against you. And then that's exactly what he does, right? You know, because we all can see it coming. Yeah. Because, because we all know how the story ends. You know, we all see the iceberg heading towards the Titanic. And it's like, oh, no, mate, why did you tell him he's going to use that against you? And then that's exactly how it plays out. Yeah, so it's a very cool scene. I think just yeah, as you say, it has a very horror. Go old church, sort of someone contained, chained, was chained up in the church. It's yeah, it's very very horror. I think that actually that whole book has a very 
horror feel to it, which is very different to some of the other Horace Heresies. It's um, just the the whole overall tone and just actually everything just going most of the book going to shit by chaos chaosiness <laughs> and warpiness. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's one one of the more of the uh, I don't want to say scary, but the horror theme books in in the series, which, I mean, which I've really enjoyed, yeah. Because it is, I mean, you know, it, it, it is a book about betrayal. You know, I mean, the Sanguinis's heart breaks in that book because you know he he when he comes to realise, he's like, you know, you know, the reason why this has happened, the inescapable reason why this happened is that the brother that you were the closest to, the one you loved closely, your dear dear friend, has stabbed you in the back, mm. and not only and not only you, but everything we stand for he's just burned it all down. And and I think about, you know, and like you say about Sanguinius being sort of like this, this, this sort of gentler kind of character, I think it absolutely breaks his heart mm. that, that, that somebody he's so close with, it's like, oh, you know, why have you gone down this terrible path? And Sanguinius has always had a kind of a degree of precognition. He's always had yeah. an ability to see the sort of like the hazy future. And I think on some level he knows how this story is going to end not exactly how not exactly when but he knows it's going to come down to me and him and it's not going to end well yeah and he had, and, and, and once that kind of discovery happens you know cygnus prime is the sort of fulcrum around that which turns and and the the, the shine comes off of the blood angels past that point because it's when you know it's after after sanguinius falls in the fight with commander you know that's the first that's the first kind of pre-echo of what will yeah. happen with the the you know the the thirst and the rage these these things are starting to bubble up to the surface and that's where the you know for the blood angels in their particular kind of timeline that's where the that's where the, the path branches you know if if that hadn't happened they might have gone on to sort of continue to be the sort of the these amazing exemplars that they are but because of what happens on Cygnus Prime they start down the dark path and it, the decay kind of comes in and it, it, it sets the, the Blood Angels on a path to being what they are in 40k. And the Flesh Terrors <laughs> with Amit doing some really um, awful stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, uh, that was again, that was something else that I wanted to put in there because the Flesh Terrors, are, are, they're, they're kind of the, you know, they're the sort of black sheep of the Blood Angels family. Yeah. And, and having those characters around at that period, I thought this is the ideal opportunity to also plant the seeds of that and say, well, why did they become what they became? Yeah. This is this is where that started. You know, these guys end up butchering a bunch of um, space wolves, and yeah. it's yeah. like, what, what did we do? You know, and uh, another scene that I'm I'm really happy with is where you know the it's like Ralderon's talking to I think it's Ralderon and Ascalon are talking, and and it, they're saying well, you know we have to tell Russ, we have to tell Sanguinius. And I said, no, we have to we have to tell Sanguinius what happened. Um, and Ascalon's like, are you mad? <laughs> because because if you tell him he'll tell russ and then what do you think is going to happen next yeah he's like and and they're all kind of like we, we can't keep this from our father figure you know from our from our gene sire and he's like no we have to because it will destroy the chapter we have to we you know and, and if you're not happy about it if it's kind of like you feel like your honor is besmirched then that's the price you will pay yeah to keep the chapter together you know you will carry this to your grave because we can't say a damn word about it yeah and it's and 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 the and the Horus Heresy is full of of events like that, you know, full of these sort of like dark tragic moments because the whole thing is a tragedy, yeah. you know, in the in the proper sort of Greek sense of the word, it's it's full of all these tragic moments and the, I think the Blood Angels again they really exemplify the 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 fall that the entire Imperium goes through in their own sort of personal journey. 
Yeah, lots and lots of compromise of what they believe in and what they who they think they are, right? Like you say, that sort of honour is besmirched, but you kind of have to deal with it. The future looks different now, <laughs> so just handle it. The, the, you know, human race can't afford to lose the Blood Angels. You know, they're probably thinking at that level as well. You know, the galaxy will not survive losing an entire legion based on something so trivial, really. Cool. So we talked about um, Space Marines quite a bit. Um, Jamie, we had a question around Nemesis. Mm. I don't know if you want to take that one. Uh, yeah, I, I just actually Nemesis is is personally one of my favourite books in the horror series, just because it takes that whole different side look about what's um, what's going on and and introduces those uh, you know we all know the models etc from from the past and, so, and just introduces them all and sort of all chucks them all together and go right here's your you know, like a, as it's kind of is like you talk about black hole down that kind of was that sort of secret side mission where you um doing it was that a purpose for you to say actually i don't want to do it i want to do a story but not involve space marines want to focus on the other aspects of the imperium well there's a, there's a kind of a fun origin story for nemesis is okay. um when um we, we we used to have these kind of regular horus heresy meetings where everybody would come together and we'd kind of hash out what we were doing with the storylines, you know, tea and biscuits and toying with the fate of a billion worlds. You know, it was like, it's such great <laughs> fun. And at the time, Dan Abnett and Graham McNeil were doing um, thousand, the Thousand Suns Prospero Burns duology, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and they were both working on those books and it was like kind of which one's going to come forward first. And, and, and they had, because the storylines and those two novels are so closely interlinked that they were working very closely together. Uh, and I was in the same meeting as well. And I remember like halfway through the meeting, I was kind of like, what am I really doing here? Because I'm not writing one of these books. And I kind of felt like a bit of a spare wheel. Uh, and, and, but in the end, you know, the, the reason the, both Dan and Graham said, well, we want another voice in the room. We don't want it to be just us. We want another voice in the room. We want someone else to catch stuff that we're not thinking of. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my job is occasionally I would say, have you thought about that? Have you figured this out? And in the process of this conversation, while we were, talking about stuff around that the axis of those two books this idea came up about the kind of for want of a nail story is like you know that what if somebody tried to assassinate horus i mean we know it failed because obviously of what goes on and it's kind of like the it's the sort of like the if you ever see that tom cruise movie valkyrie about the you know von stauffenberg yeah. go try to assassinate hitler it's the same sort of idea it's like you know if, if things had just gone differently it would have changed the entire course of the war and that idea started bouncing around and I can remember like we, we talked about it a little bit and then I immediately got my notepad out and I started jotting down notes and I thought there's a novel here I just need to find the shape of it and at the end of the conversation as we were all packing up all that stuff to go Graham came over to me and he said um you're gonna do that you're gonna do that story <laughs> and I said I'm thinking about it and he said well if you don't I will so, so <laughs> like you know if, if, if you don't want to do it let me know and I thought you know what and, and that kind of gave me the impetus so I went away and, and, I, and I kicked around this idea and I started thinking, well, what can I pull in? And once all these different elements sort of started floating around, we had all these different the, the different assassin clades. Yeah. Again, as you know, we'd we'd seen them talked about, but we hadn't seen them employed in the story. And there had been a concept that I'd pitched, um, I think, a, a couple of years earlier to Lindsay Priestley, this idea about doing an assassin's novel. And we had this idea about we, we couldn't make it work, which is the problem. We had this idea of a mosaic novel and it would be. You would have, say, like four or five different stories, and each story would be about a different assassin in the same city on the same night oh. doing doing a mission. But all of the stories would cross over each other. So you would have like, you know, 
there's, there's like a you know sniper standing sitting on the roof of a building waiting to shoot somebody and as he's waiting halfway across the sitting a building explodes and he's like oh i wonder what that was and then the next story would be here's how the building exploded you know <laughs> and all these different sort of things crossing together but it was like massively complicated in the end we were like how oh, we can't make this work but the idea of doing the sort of like the assassin team-up novel that concept never went away and once I started thinking about the, you know, the the sort of the assassination of, of Horus, this this sort of day of the jackal type story, yeah, that started coming together. And then I had this other idea. Um, this was some, something that we would we often talked about in the in the Horus Heresy. We had this idea of what we call Joe Hive City, which is just like the regular person, like someone like us, the ordinary person living in the in the universe of the War, Warhammer universe at the time of the Horus Heresy. We would often talk about this kind of person. Like if you're a regular person living on a planet in a hive city, just going about your daily business, going down to shops for a pint of milk, you know, taking your kids to school, how would the Horus heresy affect your life? Would it be so huge that you wouldn't even know about it? Or would it be in the news all the time? You know, how would it, how would it be to be a regular person mm. in the world while the heresy is going on? Because the heresy is about, you know, genetically engineered demigods beating the hell out of each other. How does it affect regular people like us? And Nemesis gave me the opportunity to tell that story, to kind of get down to ground level and say, this is what it's like for just regular people to be in the world where this crazy stuff is happening. And we've seen that sort of explored um, in different ways in, in, in other stories. But this was the kind of first time that we really got to get to grips with that. So, so we've got kind of half of the book is this sort of crime caper story, sort mm, of poli yeah. police procedural investigations. And the other half is this Day of the Jackal um, assassins versus horror story and, and at the end of it the kind of the two things sort of mesh together yes. and uh and yeah it was it was a lot of fun to to write that because it was very different it was like you know it's not a space marine story there's a couple of space marines turn up at the end and and that's about it you know it, it's it's not about the primarchs it's not about the space marines it's about regular people and and assassins yes and it became interestingly it's kind of a marmite book because a lot of people say oh it's not worth reading because you know how it ends you know they don't, they don't succeed why bother reading it and what I get is people either love this book or they hate it. They just don't, or they just don't read it. <laughs> it's, really it's such a shame to hear that, but I do know what you mean in terms of Marmite. Me and Jamie have talked about this before, where you get some people that read because they want quantifiable data. They want to know who, what happened when, who's still alive, yada, yada, yada. Where I think me and Jamie sit in the other camp, which is I want the texture. I want to know, like, what does the world look like from that lens, not this lens that we've seen already, say a space marine um the, the the reading is the journey right <laughs> yeah it, it was one of those books for me it did that it, it was like i you know like you say i know horace isn't going to get assassinated unless that was the biggest plot revealed <laughs> <laughs> he's been a proxy ever since but um yeah for me it was a it was a it was a texture book it was there to to explore something that was brand new which i thought was great and i mean yeah. i like doing stuff like that as well i mean i i went back to the idea of the kind of the Joe Hive City, what it's like to be an ordinary person, is uh, in a short story that I did called Liar's Dew, yeah. which is in, I forget which anthology it's in now. I've definitely read it. I've it's got Treachery, yeah. but I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't remember which anthology it was in. I think it was yeah. the second or third one that I did. And that's just a story about uh, a, a kind of little agrarian farm planet out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and everybody on the planet thinks that Horus is going to invade. And all the people on the planet basically turn against each other. Mm. And and it all comes down to the fact that it's just one Alpha Legion agent on the planet just messing with radio <laughs> signals to basically turn the entire population against against each other. Some of them pro Emperor, some of them pro Horus. You know, nobody know nobody really knows who's on what side. 
and and this and this one guy basically dials up the paranoia on this planet until basically everybody on the planet kills them kills each other because they don't know what's going on with the heresy um and and that's very much a story about there's no space marines in it at all you know there's but it's but it's very much a story of the heresy of what it's like to be in that world while this dark and terrible thing is taking place and the fact that it can reach down even to the smallest kind of you know a little kind of town in the middle of nowhere where there's like you know half a dozen people one pub and a dog and even the heresy can come right down to Mm -hmm. that level and kind of like pollute and destroy your life and to me i thought that was part of the reason i wanted to write that and also part of the reason i wanted to write nemesis to show that it's not just about space marines beating seven bells out of each other it is this galaxy spanning event that touches the lives of everybody Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. just that and everyone loves a true crime sort of aspect as well so um yeah, just a whole, as you say, not not quite a side story. It's a, you know, the dual part of that story, but yeah, it's um, yeah, just those different aspects um, was just yeah, I found really fascinating. And as Dave said, it's for for myself, it's just getting everything. Like I just want to know everything about this world and and horrors, heresy. So yeah, it's it was definitely a, a very enjoyable book from that aspect. That's great. I appreciate that. So I'm gonna drop Jamie in it actually, and confess for him that he's the biggest garrow fan you're ever going to make <laughs> <laughs> um oh, that's nice you've got some garrow questions lined up if you want to go for it uh, yeah well as, as dave said I, um when i read flight of the eisenstein it was just his character just he's very different to a lot of the other marines you meet at that point obviously he's very stoic as you compare like lots of marines are very stoic but there's a certain aspect where he doesn't quite fit and i think he um yeah just that appeal to me is that he's in a legion that he doesn't really feel comfortable in being um i just want to know what what was gary always meant to be a big character or was he just literally when he wrote flight of einstein that was just going to be his book and there was no sort of very short story for him or did you want to expand it going from that well it was kind of garrow's story sort of grew in the telling you know it was um i mean you know, cast your minds back to where we were, right? When when uh, I was being asked to write Flight of the Eisenstein, book four in the series, if you look at the first three novels, they're kind of big, bigger, even bigger than that. And when we were got, when we got to the fourth book, it's like we can't just keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just going to get ridiculous. It's like how do we because because if we set up an expectation in the mind of the readership that each book is going to top the one before it, it's just going to get absolutely crazy. We have to figure out a way. To, to sort of reset the narrative. So I was looking at the Eisenstein story and I said, look, Eisenstein is a small story, comparatively speaking, right? It's about yeah. just a bunch of guys on a spaceship, you know, trying to carry this message. That's what the core of that narrative is about. And even then, it's even smaller than that because really it's Garrow's story. It's Garrow's personal story. It's about this guy who has this kind of experience, this road to Damascus experience, right? While he's trying to carry this message back to Earth about this terrible, this terrible treachery that's taking place. And... Once we got that idea in our heads, it's like, well, that's great because it resets the clock and then readers will read that book and go, oh, not every book is going to be bigger than big. Yeah. You know, some books will be big and some books will be small and some books will be, you know, epic and some books will be epic with a capital epic and others will be kept <laughs> epic with a capital lily. And, and so that was the that was the idea of that. So part of the brief was that I would you know pick up some of the events that have been told in the previous novel and kind of retell them from a different point of view and thread in the narrative of the actual flight itself uh, originally the book wasn't even going to be called flight of the eisenstein actually the original title was going to be called unbroken 
okay. And um, in the end, it was Mark Gascoigne who said to me, look, we have to call it Flight of the Eisenstein because marketing want to call it Flight of the Eisenstein and people... <laughs> People won't know. People won't get what it's about. And I was like, and it's like everybody expects their book to be about this element. So, so we wrote that story. And at that stage, um, early on in the heresy, what we were doing is we were creating these new characters and we were pulling characters from the lore and kind of fleshing them out, which is what happened with Garrow. So you'd you'd have viewpoint characters like Loken's a great example of that. Loken's one of the the the, the main viewpoint characters of the heresy. You know, and he's created out of whole cloth. He's completely new to the heresy. And then we have characters like Garrow, who've been in the lore from the very, very beginning, but they weren't really explored. So, but we made that character a viewpoint character. And so through the early books, we were, we were kind of, if you imagine it as like a, a massive game board, we're like, here's a new character. And we put that figure on the board and go, here's a, here's a character. And here's a bit more story. And here's another character. And Loken was put on the board and Garrow was put on the board. And I got to the end of Eisenstein and I was like, well, here's Garrow. I fleshed him out. Um, I'll put him on the board. And if anybody else wants to tell a story with him, go right ahead right because because one of the things that we had to do with this series is we have to it's it's a very sort of collegiate kind of thing it was you can't really afford to be precious oh i wrote this only i get to write this it's like that's not fair on the other writers we had to basically realize that you know you, you we are in a team telling this story and we have to work together as a team to, to push this narrative forward and i think everybody's been really good you know throughout the whole series of books in making sure that that's what we did but i put garrow on the board and I kind of stepped back and went, well, anybody else wants to pick him up and tell a story with him? That's quite, that's cool. But everybody was off doing their own thing. Mm. And so it was, uh, people were like, oh yeah, he's a really cool character, but I'm writing this guy. Oh, I'm writing this guy. And so nobody, nobody picked up Garrow. He was just kind of left there. He'd done his thing. That was it. And at the same time, I was pushing the idea of original audio dramas, full cast <laughs> audio dramas at Black <laughs> Library. Mm-hmm. And... And it was kind of this perfect storm of things because people were saying to me, are you going to do another Garrow story? He's, you know, he's a cool character. Do you want to tell more stories with him? Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, and, I, and bear in mind, I never intended this to be done. I mean, at some point there was, there's no, people say, is there a grand plan, a great big book with all the plot line of the heresy written out? And the answer was no. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, we had a roadmap and we had a few things we knew, right? This event happens here and this event happens here, but there are these great big gaps where yeah. we don't know what happens where we're going to have to make up stuff to fill those gaps up because no one's ever written that. And, and that's what we did. We went ahead and we created stuff that bridges the gap between these points. Mm. And, even, and even those points weren't kind of cast in stone. They were more like kind of, you know, flags set in a sand dune and occasionally they would move and we'd have to, oh, okay, you know, we thought that was happening here and it was happening there. So we had this, you know, this kind of nebulous structure that we were, we're building onto as we're telling our way through the, through the heresy story. And, at the same time, people were saying to me, Garrow's a great character. You're going to do more Garrow stories. And I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I could. Maybe I could explore him here and I could take him there and do this and this. And we're talking about the audio dramas. And a BL came to me and they said, well, look, this is a perfect storm of events. People want more Garrow. Mm-hmm. You, like, you like writing audio. We want, to do, we want to do a Horace Heresy audio story. Do a Garrow story. Yeah. Make Garrow the kind of the, the sort of pathfinder for the Horace Heresy forecast audio dramas. Mm-hmm. and so that's how it began so we started off with a couple of story ideas and we gradually started etching in this sort of concept of garrow being this kind of a proto gray knight character but not quite yeah and that started you know that started building into what you're seeing here is the formation the, the very first steps of what will become the gray knights and the inquisition but they're but but it's neither of those things at this point it's the sort of it's the precursor to that 
And Garrow's part of that organization, along with a bunch of other characters that we bring in from different stories. You know, people like Amandera Kendall is a really good example of like, you know, you know, she's a sister of silence, but she becomes this almost like prototype Inquisitor type character as the, as the heresy starts to unfold. And and gradually, as I say, the, the kind of the story sort of like grew in the telling. And the, and the more Garrow stories I did, the more people were like, well, can we have more of this? Can we have more? And I think, you know, um, I have to take my hat off to to. Um, to Toby Longworth for, for putting in such a fantastic performance play. Cause he, you know, he, he absolutely breathed life into, into Garrow's character. I always say that there's, there's kind of like, you know, Garrow is a character that has many fathers. I'm one of them. Uh, Toby's definitely one of them. And I always talk about Mark Gravato, who did that fantastic painting of him in the Horus Heresy visions book, yeah. which is my touchdown. I think that, that to me, I mean, I mean, again, I remember taking that to, Toby, when we we did the first Gary audio, and saying, "This is the guy you're playing," yeah. and he said to me, "What's he like?" And I said, "Well, he's an officer." I said, "But he's got the common touch." I said, "He's like he's he's not really an aristocrat, but he's got a little bit of that in him." And he said to me, "Like like Lawrence of Arabia," and I said, "Yeah, yeah there's, there's there's actually there's a lot of him in it." And so if you listen to uh, to Toby's performance of, of Garrow. If you listen carefully, he's doing a little bit of Peter O'Toole in Arabia. <laughs> There's a little bit of that in the voice that he does, which I think is kind of cool. And so all of these things all kind of informed each other. You know, Toby's performance informed the way that I wrote Garrow past that point. So all of it kind of came together to kind of give this character more depth and life. And as we went on through the through the narrative, um, Black Library asked me if, you know, would you do a novella story? Because we were like, we'd like to put Garrow back into prose for a little while. So I did that. And then eventually we did the the, the Garrow the the um, the Weapon of Fate bind up where we took all of the short stories and all of the um, all of the audios and we kind of adapted those back into prose uh-huh. and we did that as a sort of bind up and that was an interesting experience for me because I had all these stories that I'd written in different places in different bits of the timeline and I had to kind of put them all in the right order and add all of this connective matter to try and make it flow together as a novel that was a very interesting experience I'd never really done that sort of thing before. <laughs> what was it like? Yeah. Through old work, it was kind of weird to to sort of you know I was going back and looking at it and with the with sort of hindsight going like you know yeah you kind of painted yourself into a corner by saying that didn't you you should have <laughs> should have thought more about that at the time Jim but um, fortunately you know I, I didn't do that too often and I managed to kind of find my way through it okay but yeah it was it was interesting I was like kind of working with a younger version of myself yeah. <laughs> and, and I think when you're an author if you're if you're if your career's ongoing if you're writing year on year on year you improve just because just through sheer amount of doing, you know, just leveling up and getting more XP as a writer. So I would look at some of my stuff and I'd think like, you know, that would, if I was writing that now, that wouldn't have been good enough. I'm, I'm a better writer now than I was then, mm. but because I'd improved my craft, I could go back and kind of retroactively improve what I'd written sort of like two or three years earlier. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. It, it, those stories are already, um, yeah, as you said, you can. I, I obviously I listen to him enough when you talk about Toby. Is now when I read him, that is his voice in my head is mm-hmm. is Garrow, and, and and it is it sort of I know it just sort of seems fit for him perfectly. Um, I think one of the other aspects of Garrow I really enjoy is obviously his quite intimate moments with Malkador as a character. So obviously he's a character we don't usually get to see a lot of. He's very secretive, but in those books, there's quite a few intimate. You know, moments between them and, and their conversations. So was that another aspect that you enjoyed about writing a character that's quite a lot of myth around? But yeah, Malkador's interesting because um, he's he's quite a sad, tragic character. I think the thing about Malkador I, I always kind of hove to is the guy that he carries this great weight of responsibility, 
and and he's you know he's some people look at him and go oh he's kind of like Littlefinger in Game of Thrones right like he's, yeah. he's like constantly stabbing people on the back and and gaming and stuff like that and I'm like that's not a good reading of him you know mm-hmm. he's not he's not a sinister character but he does sinister things yeah, yeah. and you know and a lot of it is he's like you know I have I have I'm I'm burdened with uh, what's the phrase is like burdened with terrible destiny right to all these things and i i have this purpose in life and i have to do these things and sometimes i will do stuff that is dark and really really horrible but it's like it's all for the greater good um but he's kind of got no one to talk to about it no you know, so he carries this burden you know the only person he can really kind of communicate with is the emperor and the emperor is like sort of beyond human ken whereas yes. you know for, for all his sort of amazing psychic abilities malkador is still human on some level and I think Garrow's probably there's there's a few characters that that Malkador can actually have a conversation with, almost on his same level. Mm-hmm. I think like Dawn is another good example. It's like the the Lightning Tower has a really great story where they have that kind of conversation, you know. Um, and I think that Garrow is another one of those characters where Malkador can kind of connect with him, almost on the same sort of level. You can almost just get what I'm about, right, Nathaniel? And it's like you can just about <laughs> see where I'm coming from. And the thing is, is, is Garrow. Um, Garrow has a kind of love-hate relationship with Malkador because yeah. because Garrow is straight arrow Garrow and he's like how can you do these terrible things and and Malkador is like well I do these things for the greater good and, uh, but for Garrow that's like I could never do that you know Malkador's crossed lines that Garrow would never ever be able to cross mm. and on some level while he kind of it's like you know he kind of respects it's like you know it's like hate the hate the game not the player right it's like that's the kind of attitude that garrow has towards him is he respects malkador but at the same time he kind of reviles him for some of the stuff that he's done mm. and that makes for a very interesting kind of relationship between the two of them Do you yeah. think... Sorry, no i was gonna say there's lots of lots of good scenes in those but where i think when he comes back from a mission and he's um yeah, and, he, and he, they just have that conversation where he just sort of appears out of nowhere and just starts, and like, Garrow sort of knows he's there, but he's, he's yeah, there's it's lots of good conversations between the two. Um, and also the other aspect I wanted to touch on Garrow was about the, his religious, the religious aspect, the, the sort of, the torment in between him about fight, when he's when he's doing his missions, where he's sort of finding that aspect of, like, actually, is is there more to the Emperor than what we know I've all been told? Was that, was that quite fun? aspect of him to write well he's kind of like he's kind of cast as like he's the first space marine who truly believes you know <laughs> with a cap with a capital b right he's the he's the one who kind of comes to the idea that the emperor is a god and and he, that's that's the you know putting the seeds of what will grow into being the imperial truth and the imperial church now arguably you could say whether is he right or wrong that's a completely different question you know is the mm-hmm. emperor actually a god you know, that's that's not the question at hand for Garrow. The question for Garrow is he believes he is. And that's what's important for Garrow, because Garrow is somebody who, you know, he loses absolutely everything that is important to him. Yeah. You know, he loses his brotherhood and his and his and his, his legion and his Primarch. And, you know, everything he's built his life around is just swept away from him in this moment of sort of terrible treachery. And it's like, you know, everything I knew was is a lie. All these people I trusted and now, you know, I'm tainted by kind of association with them. So even I can't kind of carry on with my life because all of these terrible things have happened. And in this moment when everything's torn away from him and he's just got nothing, nothing but his own sort of honor to cling to, Garrow's desperately searching for something to give his life meaning. Mm. 
for some sort of thing and and you know and in as in the real world for a lot of times when people find themselves in a dark place like that sometimes religion is what they turn to and that's what garrow is doing is garrow sort of like he needs something greater than himself to believe in because the thing that was greater than him his legion has gone and been destroyed so it's like well, what else have i got and he looks to the emperor and then he realizes oh this is the thing that is greater than me this is the thing that I need to sort of believe in in order to drag myself out of this dark place. And that mm. sets him on the road to becoming the sort of like the Marine who believes and the, you know, as Sinderman later says, the kind of the first martyr of the Imperial church. Yeah. I think it's good that when you, you brought in those other characters from those first books as well, those the iterators and Sinderman and Keller and stuff, this, yeah, to sort of push it. And also there's that other great scene where he meets uh, Sigismund as well. Another character that we know has that, mm religious aspects there's the meeting of those is sort of was sort of maybe a little i don't know if it was a little inside wink to the rest of us who know what happens with sigmund later oh, on oh definitely you know i mean god the heresy is is nothing but winks and nods to people who know what's going to happen you know, <laughs> if you if you're familiar with the franchise you know how the ip turns out you know and you see these characters and you're like oh that's this it's like mm-hmm. you know what we're doing is we're laying the keel for stuff that happens you know so that scene you know when 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 garrow's captured uh, and 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 Sigismund kind of comes in, and and you think, oh, you know, he's gonna get he's gonna get his ass handed to him here. He's gonna gonna be since he's gonna be a very bad moment. And then Sigismund kind of goes, so do you believe in this stuff too then? Mm. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, oh, and it's like almost like they kind of give each other like the Fight Club nod, right? It's like, yeah. oh, okay, you and me, we're on the same, but even though we're two totally different guys yeah. from totally different backgrounds, but this one thing we have, we share this, and we were kind of on the same page here. And it's a very unexpected moment because it goes, the scene goes completely in a different direction. Mm. And at the end of it, it's kind of like, are we, are we kind of mates now? Is that how this is working? <laughs> you know, you and me, you friends. And it's like, well, and it's a bit of a tense scene, but, yeah. but they, but they, they're both kind of changed by the moment when they, you know, it's like whenever you're a fan of something, you know, it's like the first time you meet somebody who's not a friend of yours, who's a fan of a thing and you go, wow, there are other people like me. Yeah. I didn't know people like that thing. And it's like this, that's that kind of moment is that's going on there. It's, yeah, I mean, it's the Warhammer nod, isn't it? It's the <laughs> secondary school and going, you clip Warhammer as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and I guess I was just going to say the last well, um, thing about Gary, I think is his, well, I think one of the aspects does appeal to a lot of people is that he actually gets room to breathe as like um, a single Marine doing these missions on his own. And I think that's not an aspect you see in a lot of the other books because he has this. I know he, he he has introduced other characters like uh, Rubio and stuff, but I think he that there is that aspect where he's on his own, so he gets to see more of his inner monologue compared to some of the other stuff. I think was that was that tricky just to have him do a lot of those missions separate from 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 a legion. Well, because he's because he's got quite a lot of depth to him. You know, he 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 is a character who you can kind of just sit him down and go, well, what are you thinking about? Let's hmm. let's ex- let's explore what's going on in your head. And, you know, and he because he has those depths and he and the thing is, he's constantly questioning the path that he's on. That's like one of the things that, that marbles his character all through the stories. He's like, am I doing the right thing? Is this yeah. right? Am I am I being a good and just person? You know, he's on some level. He's always constantly testing himself because he wants to be a good man. That's like kind of one of his driving forces. And so when he's in this and, and he's in a he's a good man in a bad situation, you know, everybody's in a bad situation in the heresy. But I think Garrow more than anything feels it a lot more than some of the other characters do. So he's constantly questioning what's going on. Is this right? You know, am I on the right path? Here? Am I doing 
am I doing the best I can do to make the world a better place in the face of all this terrible stuff that's happening? Mm-hmm. And you, and because he has that level of depth, because he is able to kind of question things, because he's not he's not one note, he's not kill, main, burn, destroy, right? He's he's got those he's got all those questions going on. He's several questions deep, and I think that's one of the reasons why it, make, it makes him a compelling character because you know anybody who has an ounce of self-reflection is interesting on some level. What, when you brought back Luke and was that, was that a big, were you concerned about bringing such a fan favorite back from what we thought was be him being dead on, on that world? Yeah, well that was, that, that was, um that was an interesting situation is that um, when, when, you know, Loken gets a building dropped on him, and <laughs> yeah. every, you know, everybody's like, Oh shit, Loken's dead. But I can remember being in the heresy meeting with Dan and Dan saying, uh, and then he gets a building dropped on him, but he's not dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> right from and, the start, he was, he was never and, dead. And, okay, and, cool. and, I, and, I, and we were like, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, he's like, well, you know, when it's dramatically interesting, uh, I'll bring him back or, or maybe I won't. But the kind of the intention was, is that he was kind of Schrodinger's Logan, right? It's like, is he dead or is he not dead? It's like, it, it's going to be up to the needs of the drama to make that decision. So I think if if it had been dramatically more interesting to keep him dead, he would have stayed dead. Mm-hmm. But I think Dan, I always got the sense from Dan that he intended to bring him back somewhere. He just needed to find the right place. Yeah. And I was writing this story and I just like this, this, this feels like this works. And so I went to Dan, and I said, look, uh, how do you feel about me doing this? putting Loken back on the board and this is how I do it. You know, we're going to have him come on and he's going to be broken and he's going to have to be put back together again. And he's going to, and it gives him an, it gives him a sort of fresh perspective and it gives him a fresh arc because you have, now you have damaged Loken who has to kind of find his way back through the next set of stories that he's in back to who he was. Mm. Is he ever kind of, and is he ever going to go back to being that man? And the answer is no, which is more interesting, right? You know, he's got somewhere to go now. He's got, he's got a, a mountain to climb to back, get back to sanity. And, and to me, I think it, it, it meshes really well with Garrow because they are these two important viewpoint characters. Mm. Having them come together is kind of like, you know, oh, let's do Wolverine meets Spider-Man team up, you know, two of these <laughs> characters that everybody loves. Let's put them in the same story. So there's kind of some of the thrill of, of just putting them in the same room together. That's yeah. kind of just cool on a very basic level. Oh, um, and I think it works well because Loken is lost in that story, you know, uh, and so is Garrow. Garrow knows what it's like to be lost. And so when he kind of comes to him and, Gar- and and Loken's like, you know, I've I've lost my marbles, I've gone completely off the deep end, I'm coming apart of the seams. And Garrow just kind of offers him his hand and he's like, Let me help. Let take my hand, brother, let me help. I'll bring you I'll bring you back to the light. Come with me. And to me that feels very much like that's what Garrow's all about. He's he's a good man. Mm-hmm. And he and he sees Loken, you know, in pain and he's like, I'm gonna help you out of this. And also because, you know, you're an awesome fighter and a cool space marine and we need people like you. You know, we need heroes like you. We need you on our side, not on, not in the side of madness. So that's kind of what goes on in that moment. So for me, I think I think Dan sort of like definitely got that that was the direction I was coming from. And he was like, yeah, go for it. So yeah. he gave, gave me his blessing and, and I went off and wrote the story. And without spoilers, because it is fairly new-ish, but, but obviously we know they're back as we just mentioned now, but seeing them in the siege of terror book that Dan did, what was that? Saturnine. That was some of the most um, payoffy emotions I've ever felt for <laughs> some storytelling. I just, I lost it with the Loken scenes and the Garrow scenes in that. It was just, it's hard to put into words, really. It was just fantastic. <laughs> One of the things that we've tried to do with these books is we've tried to create, we try to do that to like lay the keel for these things that will, you know, lay in early, pay off late, 
and there's there, there's a phrase that that came up a lot in the early days as we talked about holographic storytelling was the phrase that we would use and the idea is, is like you know if you pick up a hologram and you hold it up to the light and you turn it slightly you know there's an image trapped in a hologram and you can see different aspects of it. you turn it this way you see one side you turn it the other way you see a different side and we wanted to do that with the heresy series is that it's holographic narrative is that you read a book and you'll perceive it one way but then you can read like 20 more books and then if you came back to that book again and read it again the book will have turned slightly yeah. because of what happened and it's like oh now now that narrative plays out in a completely different way because because of what events we planned out pay off later on suddenly you realize oh when he says this thing in book 10 it pays off in book 33 <laughs> but you know you, you uh, and and it's kind of like that that was the sort of the this the sort of secret pact that we made with the readership is if yeah. you come with us on this journey and you pay attention and you read everything we promise you we will pay it off <laughs> and we will we will make it worth the price of admission you know if you take the if you take the ride buy the ticket take the ride we will make it worthwhile mm. and that's been the that's been the intention you know or ever since the beginning and it's definitely paid off. <laughs> it's it's uh, Saturn Nine was definitely the the it's one of the rare moments. I did it on audiobook. I I swear on my life I actually air punched when Logan <laughs> did his bit. Um, I lost it completely. Um, so yeah, it was really nice to see him come back. <laughs> I am I am sad that I haven't you know because of the way my schedule worked out is I couldn't do a, a Siege of Terror novel. Is uh, that you know they did ask me to to come in and write one. Uh, and uh, I'd, it was after I'd written um, after I'd written uh, the buried dagger. Mm. During the writing of that, my father passed away, and yeah. you know it was uh, and it was a it was a very difficult time for me. And after that, they were like, you know, do you want to come and do another novel? And I was like, I've just got nothing in the tank. Yeah, yeah. And so I and so I said, look, I can't, I just can't do it. And no. I didn't want, and I didn't want to kind of phone something in, you know. I didn't want to just say, oh, I'm, uh, yeah, absolutely, I'll do it, but you know, and then just produce something that wasn't good enough. No. So at the end of the day, I said, like, you know, I'm going to step away from this. Uh, and it's been interesting. It's been it's been kind of, you know, on some level, I'm like, kind of, oh, I wish I could have done that. But on the other hand, I think like, you know, it, it was it was the right choice for me to make at the time. Yeah. And I guess you get to enjoy it as just a uh, um, as a reader. Right. I mean, I know you're probably privy to many conversations and WhatsApp groups and stuff, but that must be quite a nice, exciting journey to just step back and watch the last chunk of it fold out. I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, not so much really, because it's like uh, with the with the siege of terror, that's been very that's been very much a kind of closed shop. Yeah. So so I haven't I haven't really been privy to that. I've been you know coming to it pretty much, you know, with with a little bit of insight, but not a lot, you know. And I mean, I still have plans, you know, to Garrow's story's not not told. That there's still another story for Garrow to be told. Ooh. And you know, and, and we've been we've been this we've been talking about this for a long time about where that story was going to play out. And um, originally we were talking about doing it as an audio drama, a forecast audio drama. Mm. Um, but you know, Black Library's moved away from doing forecast audio now, so um, we're looking at exploring that in a in a in a different fashion. That's really exciting. So um, you know, I mean, right now it's it's kind of all up in the air. I, I can't sort of say like you know when and if it's going to happen, but it's something that I definitely would like to do because I feel so close to the character. Yeah, absolutely. I want to I want to kind of cap off his his adventures in the in the heresy, you know, in in the kind of give him his kind of siege of terror story, and, and bring that to a close. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he deserves it, right? He absolutely deserves it. Um. 
I, I had a question. It's not relating to Garrow. So I don't know if you might as a guess a little bit. Jamie, I don't know if you've got anything else you wanted to cover off on Garrow question. Uh, not really. I guess it's how, how cool is it to have a model of a character of one of your characters? That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm like, I've got two because I've got, um, oh, yeah, not only, I mean, Garrow's, people say like, you know, Garrow's your character, but I don't feel like he is because I didn't create him. You know, what I did is I took a character that already existed and I kind of built him up. Mm-hmm. so yeah. um so yeah. so i feel kind of like like i said earlier you know i feel kind of partially like responsible for creating yeah. Gar- building guarantee who he is um but like th- there's also like a, a figure of tylos rubio and rubio yeah. is rubio is 100 percent my own creation but having said that um yeah absolutely it's cool it is <laughs> i mean um and I'm a, I'm a terrible miniatures painter as well you know and so they gave me one of the the the, the little boxes with the figure in it and i was like oh this is so awesome and i don't want to mess it up <laughs> by just daubing you know stupidly all over it me painting's good so so um but i have a friend uh, my friend pete evans also uh, another novelist is pete's a really uh, great miniatures painter and mm. so I, I just said to him, like, you know, and I paid him to do it for me. And he did a, just a crack, cracking job of it. And I have it sitting um, as I'm sitting here talking to you. I can just look across my office. It's sitting on top of my filing cabinet. Is the, the little Garrow figure there. Because you know, um, in my office, I have what I what I call my my kind of trophy room. Mm. I don't know if you uh, if you remember the old Superman comics where, you know, in the Fortress of Solitude, Superman would have all of the bits and pieces like trophies yeah. from supervillains that he'd be defeated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the bottle seat of Candor and stuff in one corner and this thing in somewhere else. In my office, I have a little kind of object, like a, it'll either be like a an ornament or a toy or something from every franchise or IP I've ever worked on. That's cool. So, so I've got Garrow represents, little Garrow fit miniature up there represents my work on the Horus Heresy. I've got, if you remember the Polystone Space Marine models that were made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got one of those of a Blood Angel, and then I've got kind of like you know TARDIS and Starship Voyager and that kind of thing. Uh, Adam Jensen figure from the Deus Ex video games and all that kind of stuff dotted around my office. So I have all these little bits and pieces just to kind of represent. And so Garrow has uh, pride of place there up on the shelf. What's hey. really nice is is, is that it, one of the most rewarding things about writing for the for Black Library is when people come up to me at an event and go, "Oh, I made a I made a miniature, or I, I started an army based on." something that you wrote in a book you know <clears throat> and um you know, people will show me like a picture of a conversion they've done like based on a character just this week actually someone sent me some pictures of a character based on athene santiago which is the the rogue trader captain i wrote for my corsair audio drama mm-hmm. and it's just like it's so cool to just see see that kind of that character that kind of lives in my head to kind of come to life as an actual figure that you could put on the board and play a game with it's really really awesome was it intentional that you would write the first book if it was it feels like you've bookended the horus heresy in my opinion because you've done the first book after the opening trilogy and you've done the last book before the siege of terror and they're both very um death guard centric was that intentional to sort of bookend it in that way or was it just pure accident not at all no i mean it's 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 sweet of you to think that we'd actually planned that far ahead no <laughs> not at all um it's just that's just kind of the way it shook out um i mean buried dagger is buried dagger is two books yeah it's it's two stories side by side yeah. and um and originally it was going to be two complete books is the the you know the 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 two plot lines that are going on in the story is one is the doom of the death guard is you know where the death guard go into the warp and they make their dark pact with nurgle and they come out forever transformed well that's one that's one narrative thread of the story 
The other narrative thread is Garrow uh, and Malkador and a, a bunch of other space marines on Terra going, you know, turning the wheel towards what will become the the, the Grey Knights and the, yeah. the and getting into kind of the events of like, you know, the shrouding of Titan and all that kind of stuff that has to happen. And originally, the Doom of the Death Guard story was going to be uh, a graphic novel. If you remember the, I'm, I'm blanking on the title, but the Ultramarines okay. graphic novel. Yeah, I know. The, the, the fully painted one is the, the idea was is that we were going to do like two or three of those. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and, the track one, yeah. Yeah, um, and and the and the and the and the concept was for the second one was going to be the Doom of the Death Guard story. It was just going to be that narrative, mm-hmm. and we were going to do that as a graphic novel. And uh, I was going to write it, and uh, and um, Neil Roberts was going to was going to paint and illustrate the thing. And, and we went through a lot of different sort of discussions about that. And that storyline was kind of set in stone. And I thought we we're going to do this, but then. Um, the decision came down. It's like, okay, we're not going to do any more graphic novels, but we still need to tell this story. Mm. And it's like, okay, well, how do we, you know, how do we, t- how do we translate that into something else? And also, there was this other, this, this story about the the Grey Knights and Titan, and that was being developed. I was developing that as a as a novel length idea, and then we reached the point where the the heresy was sort of like getting to the point where we're like, we're, we're going to do the siege. It's like okay, we've decided, you know, we've we've done we've done fifty odd books. We're going to do the siege, and so it's like, well, have we got have we got enough space to do these as two different books before we start doing the siege? And the idea and the answer was no. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well then this story has to be two as two aspects of the same novel. So we took these two ideas, and what I did is I found a way to merge them together, to kind of tell this parallel narrative, and that became the structure for the buried dagger. Mm-hmm. And because of the way that the, the it just it became a, just a simple question of like what book was coming out when it's like that's why that book is there. And so mm-hmm. it, it wasn't sort of any grand plan. It's just like this is how this is how the cards fell as they were dealt. It's uh, accidentally poetic, then I guess because yeah. I, I, I absolutely thought it was intentional. Because I love and I I gotta be I gotta be honest I love book ending in stories. Yeah. I, I, do, I do it all the time in my writing is, you know, set a thing up at the at the beginning and then mirror it at the end. So, yeah, I do love the the circularity of that, um, you know, does make me smile. I think I'm, I'm quite happy to to have been the one to kind of run down the curtain on the Horus heresy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I kind of I think I even sort of like to talk about that in the afterword for the book is I say, like, you know, this is like buried dagger is the moment where the kind of the music stops and we all kind of take a breath. And it's like, but when the curtain comes back up. Yeah. Now, now you're going to be in the siege and all bets are off yeah 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 it's also kind of circle as well because obviously grey knights have that link obviously drago and mortarian have that there is that grey knights and death guard kind of are linked together as well in the story so yeah kind of... yeah they're, they're always like kind of like you know two sort of stars orbiting each other you know mm-hmm. always kind of like coming into conflict and then pulling apart and then coming together again is is you know again I, I like the 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 idea of that that's something that's constantly being reflected throughout the law is these these two groups are always kind of clashing and then pulling apart and clashing again. So I had a question for you around the Death Guard because you've written quite a bit about them in the Heresy and there's quite a lot of books around them in 40k at the moment um, with uh, uh, Guy Haley doing his sort of Ultramarines. Uh, uh, story and something that keeps cropping up for me and I've never really been able to work it out myself is what is that sort of what do you think is the key breakdown in relationship or issue between Typhus and Mortarian um, and is this something you've thought about quite a lot writing Flight of the Eisenstein and Barry Dagger 
Yeah, definitely, because of the because the Typhus Mortarian relationship um, in in the Death Guard sort of part of Buried Dagger. That's that's a very important part of that story, because because you know I, I wanted to kind of unpick that relationship and go into kind of well, why are these two guys friends in the first place and in, and you know when you see them at the beginning of their stories you know when they're both sort of young men uh, at the beginning of their rebellion against um against mortarian's sort of stepfather is they're, they're both these sort of outcasts mm. and they're both kind of carrying the seeds of darkness with them and mortarian is like striving to in a way you know it's something that you see echoed in garrow he's stri- mortarian is striving to be a better man Mm. but he doesn't really know how to get there yeah and he's a bit kind of ham-fisted about it yeah yeah so you know whereas um typhus is kind of not really typhus doesn't really care about being a better man he cares about getting it done yeah and he's quite happy to take whatever path is open and and that's the that's the kind of the central conflict between the two of them is that although they fought side by side and although they trust each other they have this kind of relationship where i think it's like it's kind of almost like a mutually assured destruction is neither one of them can really lie to the other, even yeah. though they, even though they do, it's <laughs> kind of like, you know, they, it's like on some level they know, you know, they can always kind of say, you know, that's not, you're not really being honest with me there. And and they might deny it and they might pretend that that's not the way things are. But on some level, I think they, they have this sort of like clear eyed perception of each other that never goes away. And that's, that's born in their early years. Ooh. And, but that is the seed of it. I think is, is that, is that Mortarian is the sort of he's this kind of steadfast one foot in front of the other kind of I see a problem I just I just kind of work at it bullheadedly until I until I get get it done whereas Typhus is the guy going is there a shortcut you know is there a quicker and easier way to do this it might cost me something maybe my immortal soul maybe something else you know it might it, I might have to do some terrible things but you know is there a shortcut is there a shortcut through this and that's the kind of seed, I think, of the of the, the conflict between the two of them. And what parts of them do you think do they embody in Nurgle? So what are those two nuggets within both Mortarian and Typhus that do you, you think Nurgle brings to the fore? I think the the idea that you know if you if you kind of go with the the sort of disease metaphor, is yeah. that Mortarian is the sort of the 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 sort of slow inexorable decay that comes to all of us right he's he's kind of he's creeping old age right he's tiredness in your bones he's that he's the sort of he's the inescapable predator that is time that's that's mm-hmm. kind of that's how i think mortarian would kind of reflect all of nurgle whereas typhus is typhus is the disease that strikes you down the thing that you're not expecting you know he's the sort of like he's the cancer that you didn't think you were going to get yeah so you know he's the sort of like the disease he's that tropical disease that you know some bug gets you that you weren't thinking you wouldn't think it'd ever affect you that strikes you down really quickly you know that's the kind of the i think the the reflection of of the nature of nurgle off of the two of them Mm, mm. yeah they're they're two very obviously they're the same coin but they whenever you read them in your work or in others they feel like well they don't feel like they're rowing in the same way like they never feel like they're really on the same side, no. but they are due to who they follow as a god, I guess. But yeah, no, it's really nice to hear your thoughts on that because it's definitely something that was always on the forefront of my mind, re- especially reading Buried Dagger, that um, seeing both of their rises to power, somewhat similar but very different, um, which is quite interesting. I mean, I've I've always felt that like you know Typhus carries, um, well as you know when he's Typhon carries carries this sort of seed of jealousy towards. Mortarian, because I think you know he looks on Mortarian as, as somebody like you know 
in the early years, he definitely sort of trusts and respects him. But he's kind of like, why are you being so slow? Why aren't you taking the shortcut? And he yeah. always feels like on some level, why are you dragging us down? You know, you're, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're, you're a drag on everything we're doing. And if you would just see it my way, we could get this done quicker. We could solve this problem faster. But oh, why are you, why are you taking the long road every time? Right? And that's that kind of like, that's the, I think that that's the seed of his frustration with Mortarian. And at the same time, Mortarian, because Typhon is basically the first person who's nice to him, and he's he's the kind of first friend that Mortarian ever had in his life. And I think he's got like, he's got mate blindness where that guy's <laughs> concerned, you know, you know what it's like. It's like, there's one person who's a friend of yours and, and everybody goes, why do you like that guy? He's such a dick. <laughs> and then like, they're like, Oh yeah, he's always nice to me. You know? And I think that that's Mortarian and Typhon is he has this mate blindness thing with, with Typhon. He's like, you know, but this, you know, but he can't be all bad because he's been my friend forever. I know he yeah. does bad stuff, but he can't be all bad. And it's like, no, actually, he really is, because by the, you know, by the end of the story, he really is all bad. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, he's mostly responsible for. It was an ultimatum that Mortarian had no choice in, right? Yeah, and and that's and that's the kind of that's the final evolution of that kind of moment, is that you know when when they're there in the warp, and it's like you know Mortarian is kind of having to make this deal with with Nurgle, and it's it's like it's Typhon who brought you there. Yeah. Typhon puts you in this situation, and and the reason this happened is because you trusted him when everybody else said you shouldn't. Yeah. Because yeah. you thought there's still maybe on some level he's he's looking at him and thinking, you know, that guy who was my friend all those years ago, there's still some of that guy in there, but there actually isn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah, very very good story, and like I say, I definitely felt it. Um, uh, drew the curtain, like you said, like dim the lights, the music went down. <laughs> Because as far as I remember, the the final part of I look back at the old books, the the old codexes and rule books, that was always the last mention before the siege was the genesis of the Death Guard as they are now. That sort yeah. of journey. So yeah, it's a really good book to end on. Okay, well um I think we'll wrap it up there then, James. That's all right. Um, oh. uh, where can people, our lovely listeners, go and find you uh, on the world of the internet? Well, best place to, to kind of find out everything about me, all of my Warhammer heresy writing and, and pretty much everything I've ever done ever is <laughs> if you come to jswallow.com, that's my official website. Everything, all my work is up there and there's links to stuff if you want to buy it or read more about it. And I, I uh, put a blog up there like a couple of times a month uh, and I have a sort of up to date list of all, all the stuff I've got coming out. So you can find all the information there about that. If you want to uh, send me a question or just kind of find out what's on my mind right now, the best place to find me is on Twitter, which is at JM Swallow. Lovely. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you for making the time to come on. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really enjoyed that. Um, well, well, thank you, guys. I mean, it's, it's, it's always great. As I always say, when whenever I'm asked to do these sort of things, is it's it's no chore to kind of talk about writing because i love the job i get to do um mm. I'm, I'm a lucky guy and and it's just fun to kind of nerd out about about this something that's been uh, a big part of my career and, and a big part of my fandom yeah absolutely yeah I, i'm jealous i wish i could write is all i can say <laughs> i'm good enough a writer but one day who knows <laughs> well um on that note um, i'll say thank you and good night yes thank you james, james. Oh, my pleasure guys Cheers.